0: And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash show. All right, you guys, on the line, I got Ted Snyder. He writes for us at antiwar.com and at the Libertarian Institute. And his latest at antiwar.com is called, Biden knows Putin killed Alexei Navalny. Welcome back to the show, Ted. How you doing, man?
1: I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, Happy to have you here.
0: So I'm already bored of this story, but go ahead and tell me it. Who's Alexei <laughs> Navalny, and why does anybody care about him?
1: Well, Alexei Navalny. I mean, it's hard to say who Alexei Navalny was because his his positions were really hard to to pin down. But he was for the West, um, the face of the face of the opposition to Putin. So so for the West, Alexei Navalny was an exciting character because he represented that opposition, and and with his death. Um, that's being played by Biden to to um, reinforce this idea that that Putin is a you know a, a, a brutal person who who killed Navalny and this should be used as evidence to you know increase funding for Ukraine to to fight Putin and to to stop the you know to stop the monster. Um, but it's an interesting story because it's an interesting story to look at what Navalny meant in Russia as opposed to the West, and um, to look at some of the dangers of biden's assumption that it was that it was putin that killed navalny and also to to look at some of the you know things that would change say if navalny was the opposition leader and some of the sort of warnings those give. so there's a lot of interesting angles to it to talk about um it depends on on where you want to start i mean for me the starting point is that is that when navalny died in in prison um in russia And, you know, Biden made his first statements and he was asked if they knew that Navalny had been assassinated. Um, Biden said the answer is we don't know exactly what happened. Um, But then he went on to say, make no mistake, Putin's responsible for his death. Um, This is interesting to me, Scott, because the the president of the United States, he, he only knows what his intelligence community tells him. Right. Like he's in the White House and he can't see the world. He has to make decisions, but he makes decisions based on the information his intelligence community gives him. And Biden shows a disturbing tendency to make judgments that go beyond what the intelligence community tells him. And that's a risky thing to do as a president, because that makes you're making decisions on things you don't know. He doesn't know that Putin killed Navalny. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't. But if the U.S. intelligence doesn't know, then Biden doesn't know. And so he probably shouldn't be making policy based on that knowledge, which he doesn't know. So that's that's sort of the first yeah. interesting thing, right?
0: Well, you know what we have with Biden, the same kind of thing we have a little bit with Trump, although nobody ever caught him any slack. But we, you certainly had this with W. Bush. Well, the guy's such an idiot that everybody's cutting him slack all the time and kind of trying to charitably interpret what he says in a way. And we have that with Biden where, you know, there's a way to look at it where he really means it sort of like as a figure of speech because it's really a pretty simple argument to say Come on. The guy was in prison in the Arctic Circle doing hard labor on obviously bogus political charges. So if he dies of frostbite up there, he, he, the, still, he was murdered by the regime. In it was man, too. Right. <laughs> Something like that. You know, there's an argument there to be had. Maybe that's all he meant by it. I think I would agree with that. And we have the same thing with Ukraine and um, Gonzalo Lira. We have this question of Julian Assange right now, whether he's going to die in prison based on some trumped-up crap because they hate him. And that's America acting a lot like Putin to me, and I ain't like it. You know what I mean? Most of our problems between America and Russia are instigated by the United States, but that doesn't mean that I approve of the way they run the prison system over there. And I don't believe... That Navalny was guilty of whatever fraud they convicted him of. He's still presumed innocent to me. You know what I mean? On that, the guy, if they wanted to try him for being a CIA asset, that would probably be a different matter. But, like, clearly it was some trumped-up charges, right? So, I don't know. There is something to that. And it's the same argument that they make, of course, about Magnitsky, although they claim he was beaten to death. And I don't know if that's really true, although... I think he was beaten before he died, but he died basically of medical neglect, the same as Gonzalo Lira.
1: So, um, you know. It's an interesting question, Scott, and there's a long there's a long history. This happened, um, you know, it happened in recently when Prigozhin's when plane went down too. There's this assumption always that Putin killed people because there's this long list of opponents in the West that Putin is, is held to have killed. The problem is when you look at that list, when scholars look at that list, um, probably none of, and certainly few of those people were ever actually killed by Putin. Um, th- there's like, th- there's the question of whether. Putin With the exception
0: of Prigozhin, probably I could see him ordering that one because that guy came at him hard, you know.
1: Look, there's a lot of guys that came at Putin hard and there's a lot of claims in the West that these people are really legitimate, you know, opposition to Putin and Putin would want them taken out. But when when serious scholars have looked at the list of of people and there's like a dozen or more people on the list, there's always the you know, there's that there's this question that these people were killed and and it's possible, you know, some some scholars, some Putin biographers say that Putin allowed a, a system where because he didn't punish people, who killed people, it allowed for people to get killed, but that's very different from saying that Putin gave the order or even the approval to kill. And in most of the cases, there's very little evidence. Um, a lot of really good scholars like like Stephen Cohen and Philip Short and Richard Sakwa argue that in most cases there's no evidence um that, that Putin gave the order or, or approved of those killings. And and the, the, the thing about the thing about Navalny is that it, it, there's the suggestion that Putin would want these people removed because they're a threat to him. But there's the very serious question of motive because it's not clear that Navalny was a threat to Putin because although the West held him up as sort of the, the poster child of the opposition, he never really played that role in Russia. He never really took root in Russian soil as that kind of um threat to Putin. And in fact, recent polling, um, like reliable independent polling showed that in January, just a month before Navalny's death, his approval ratings had sunk to below 1%. And they never were much higher than that. I mean, they never really escaped the single digits. Um, one, one scholar famously said that, that Navalny was more of a gadfly than a national leader because He never really did get over a couple. So he never was a political threat to Putin. Well, and And in fact,
0: I mean, Ted, if he had any kind of popularity at all, he could have picked up a seat in the Duma and then he would have had immunity from prosecution. You know, here he his high watermark was running for mayor of Moscow, which he lost.
1: So he was... he ran for mayor of Moscow. He was allowed by Putin. In fact, Putin's party helped him to run. They thought he'd get clobbered. He actually did better than they expected. He got about twenty seven percent of the vote. But that's in Moscow, and Moscow often gets more votes against Putin than than the rest of Russia. But that twenty seven percent was the high water mark for him. When in the two thousand and eighteen elections, when um, Navalny was not allowed to run, the the pre election polls showed that he was only getting about 2% support. So even if he had run, he wasn't going to be a threat. And the parties that were on like the social liberal end of the spectrum where Navalny at the time was positioning himself, they only got 3% of the vote. The communist party got was much more of a threat to Putin than, than the groups represented by Navalny. And at the time of his death, he had no support. He was less than 1%. And so you get the question of motive there, Scott, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm not making the case that Putin didn't kill Navalny. I'm also not making the case that, that Putin did. I'm making the case that Biden doesn't know. And so he probably shouldn't be making policy based on he does. And, and the, the, the argument I'm making is that Navalny's popularity was not a threat to Putin. It was very, very low. He didn't need to worry about it. He had less than 1% support. And the timing, Scott, was terrible. Things are going great. Putin right now. He's coming into this election. His polling numbers are astonishing. Like they're in the 80s, probably around 83%. And I know you can argue that elections aren't fair in Russia, and certainly they're not totally fair in Russia, but you could run a totally fair election in Russia right now, and Putin would clean up. So he's he's polling at about 83%, which is really high. And then Navalny's death, it actually stole the headline that Putin most wanted before the election. And that's the, the fall of the, the town of Avdika, which is which is not a symbolic victory like the West likes to paint it. It's a turning point in the war. This is a crucial victory. And, you know, Putin would have wanted that headline that I'm soaring along at 83 percent. The war is going great now. Everything's beautiful. And then Navalny gets killed and all this suspicion gets cast on Putin. And it's exactly the PR he doesn't want now. So, so there, there is, again, I'm not arguing for a, a, a verdict, but you can't just make the assumption you need to look at it There have been lots of Putin opponents who have died without Putin's orders or approval Um, and you need to at least look at what is the case. Why would putin want Navalny dead now? You can't just assume that putin ordered it um, so You know, that that's an interesting thing and there's other interesting things too scott that that that, you know, should be talked about with Navalny because just, there's the question, you know, when, when, when Biden starts pressuring the House of Representatives and says that, you know, this is a reminder of, of why we should be um, continuing military aid for Ukraine, because look what Putin did to Navalny, it's instructive to look at what Navalny did too. And when you look at Navalny as this figure for, you know, opposing the war in Ukraine, it's important to remember that Navalny's foreign policy in these cases was not significantly different from Putin's at all that that changing Putin for Navalny wouldn't have gotten the West its fantasy Navalny was not in favor of returning Crimea to Ukraine any more than Putin or any other Russian leader would be. The farthest that that Navalny ever went on, on Crimea was to say, well, maybe we should let them have another referendum. But he knew full well that a referendum would just mean Crimea leaving. So he, he supported not giving back Crimea. In the 2008 war with Georgia, with the Russian military involvement in Georgia, Um, Navalny fully supported the the war in Georgia. Some people say that he revoked that later. It's hard to tell with him because he changes position all the time, but he probably didn't. He, He had some very racist names for people in Georgia, and he probably revoked calling them that, but he didn't revoke supporting the involvement. And most importantly, Navalny was an advocate for protecting ethnic Russians abroad. And Look, that was one of Putin's main reasons for going into the Donbass and into Georgia was protecting ethnic Russians from abroad. So when we support, you know, Navalny to, to stop Putin from what he's doing in Ukraine, Navalny wouldn't have stopped Putin from what he's doing in Ukraine. Right. And, and you know, it, it also raises this warning about, you know, be careful about wishing for regime change because you don't always know what's coming up behind Putin and and look Navalny was always an anti-Putin, anti-corruptionist fighter. That was noble and he was courageous. And at times that campaign was brilliant. It was sometimes hard to tell exactly what Navalny did believe, but he always believed in you know anti-corruption, anti-Putin. But he wasn't anti-Putin foreign policy. And, and sometimes in some of his other things, as an alternative, although he may have been a much better leader than Putin, he could have also been worse. Um, while he didn't differ on the foreign policy, he was less pluralistic than, than Putin, more nationalistic, more anti-immigrant, more, you know, more his policies were more racist, anti-immigrant. Time he, he called immigrants cockroaches in one of his videos. He advocated that the solution for immigrants was shooting them. I mean, you're looking at the New York Times, you know, eulogizing Navalny as another Martin Luther King Jr. or Nelson Mandela. He wasn't. We should call him what he was. He was a very courageous, very brilliant, very effective anti-corruption campaigner. But he was not Martin Luther King Jr. He was he was very anti-immigrant. It was very, you know, it's not it's not a fair picture to paint. So we have to be a bit careful how we handle Navalny and jump on board with the Russian opposition and. Biden needs to be careful about the language that
0: he uses. Hey, y'all, I got a new coffee sponsor, Mundo's Artisan Coffee at Mundo'sArtisanCoffee.com. When I wake up in the morning, I feel like my brain is all dried out. I need to pour a hot mug of rich, tasty coffee all over it to get it back working again, like 10W30 for the noggin. Though not necessary, it helps if the coffee tastes good. Well, Mundo's Artisan Coffee does taste good. They get the best beans from all around the world, and they don't burn them. Support the show and support your brain at MoondoseArtisanCoffee.com. Just click the link in the right margin at scotthorton.org. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house, so I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Well, folks, sad to say, they lied us into war. All of them. World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq War I, Serbia, Afghanistan, Iraq War II, Libya, Syria, Yemen. All of them. But now you can get the ebook All the War Lies, by me, for free. Just sign up for the email list at the bottom of the page at scotthorton.org or go to scotthorton.org slash subscribe. Get All the War Lies by me for free. And then you'll never have to believe them again.
1: Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back
0: I mean, the way that the Americans carry on about the guy couldn't be more obvious, you know, like tone it down a little bit here. But if you go back, like you're saying about, you know, his political origins and all of that, it was interesting. I didn't know I picked up from your article that he'd been kicked out of the Yabloko party. Yeah. For his statements and there's people can find the video of this, of him saying that the, you know, referring essentially to Chechens as cockroaches and saying we should shoot them and all that. And, you know, there was an article it's in my pile, AKA my ever unfinished book. Um, during the snow revolution, I think it was in 11 that the New York times said, well, what's going on here is you have this coalition in the street, at least in these protests with essentially just like if you're talking about the green revolution in Iran, a bunch of liberals from the big city you know, um, who don't represent the people out in the countryside whatsoever. Um, Although in this case, in alliance with a relatively small group of right-wing nationalists who are to the right of Putin. So you have these liberals to his left and these nationalists to his right, but they're the anti-Putin front. That's what they agree on. And that's what the Americans agree on too. And so the Americans, um, you know, led by... At that time, I guess Michael McFaul and whatever were blatantly supporting these protests and this alliance. And they even have quotes in the Times piece I'm thinking of where the liberals are saying, yeah, you know, this could come back to bite us in the ass later. (laughs) But for now, you know, we've got to do what you can and this kind of thing. So, So to your point. You know, they're always calling Putin Hitler, but maybe Putin is Hindenburg and maybe Hitler is sitting there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be too afraid of Zirinovsky. I mean, he's a fool and a puppet anyway. I don't think he has much support either. But there are forces to Putin's right, probably men we've never heard of in the military and wherever else, that were he to be regime changed, we might not even get a Navalny type at all, but somebody maybe two or three clicks to the right of him. Determined to retake Russian territory in Asia and Eastern Europe and God knows what.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are forces to the hardliners that are more extreme than Putin who advocated since 2014 going much farther into Ukraine. Than Crimea and Putin actually held them back. He was he was a restrainer actually. And um, he's been criticized heavily for trusting into the Minsk Accord and, and thinking there was a Donbass and not going and solving the problem then. And um, Navalny was he was the poster child of the opposition, and that's why the West sort of jumped on him. It's and sort of overlook some of the other things. His his popular in the West was great. than his popularity ever was in Russia, but it was what the West could grab onto to advocate. For, for opposition to Putin. And you're right, he was thrown out of the, the um, Yabloko party in 2007. They said they threw him out for causing political damage to the party, which they called nationalist activities. And those nationalist activities were referring to immigrants as cockroaches and and advocating killing them. So it, it, you, have, you just have to be careful. But but so in the West we overlook these things. We always do if we can grab onto a revolution or a color, color revolution to try to get rid of a regime. And um, so it's important to it's important to look at Navalny for what he was, and it's important to give him credit where he deserves. He was brilliant. He was courageous. He fought this anti-corruption campaign but he wasn't Martin Luther King and he wasn't Nelson Mandela and he wasn't a foreign policy critic of Putin at all. He probably wouldn't have done anything different in Ukraine. So to use him to keep the war going in Ukraine is disingenuous. Um, so it's important to give him accolades where he deserves it and to not erase history when, when that's important too. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, and especially when And what the hell are they on about when this guy is like Ahmed Chalabi? He doesn't have the support. In fact, Chalabi had some support in Iraq because his family had bankrolled the upkeep of a certain Shiite shrine in Najaf, I believe it was. So he had a little bit of credibility there. Maybe this guy has a little bit. But the idea that they were going to, what, on their best day, make him the president when he already doesn't have support. When he would be nothing but an American sock puppet and everybody would know it. Yeah, Why he, would they think that they could ever get away with somehow in their craziest daydreams, Ted, thinking that it would come true someday that Navalny would be the president of Russia and then they'd be a compliant little puppy dog
1: or or perhaps they just thought that boosting Navalny was a way to support the opposition? I don't know whether they had faith that it would be him, but it was a way and I'm trying to get things moving, but Navalny really lost his ability to get people out into the streets, that the numbers that he could, that he could get were, were low. Um, and, and, you know, there was even polling showing like in 2021, there was polling that showed that like, you know, about 19% of Russians, you know, kind of approved of his activities, but less than 5% thought he was trustworthy. He didn't, he didn't have this mass support. Like we think he did in the West, he, what he did, he should get credit for what he did, but um, but he shouldn't be made into what he isn't. And we shouldn't be making assumptions before we know. Um, And and that's what Biden's doing. He's making assumptions before we know. And then he's using those assumptions to try to keep a war going um, in a rather disingenuous way. And that's, that's, that's dangerous. That's risky.
0: Yeah. And of course, all other things being equal, it's none of America's damn business anyway. I mean, the world is lousy with governments that persecute political opponents and they can complain about it, but this whole thing where we wage an economic war against everybody who crosses us, especially at the height of the persecution of Assange. I mean, I just finished telling uh, Mohammed Al-Mazi, I got to go to interview Ted after we just had this discussion about how they're going to extradite Julian Assange. It's a last-ditch appeal to prevent them from burying this guy alive next to Ramsey Youssef in the Supermax.
1: Right. Well, while, while at the same time, you you criticize Russia for allowing somebody to 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 die in, in prison, um, you know, for being an opposition. But but, you know, not being hypocritical has never been a strong suit of American foreign policy. Seriously. Right?
0: Yeah. Hey, by yeah. the way, just real quick. I'm sorry. Uh, we should do a whole other show on this. But um, can you talk to me a little bit about the Russians recent victory at how do you say the name of the town here?
1: I don't know. I I say I say Avdivka but I don't know how to close enough. Avdivka
0: something like that. Yeah. I should have asked the old lady, she knows. But anyway, yeah. so uh it's a pretty big deal that they lost this town, huh?
1: It's a very big deal. You won't see that in the Western media. The Western media calls it a symbolic victory because it's Putin's first victory since Bakhmut. And you'll see occasionally someone refer to it as a symbolic victory because it affects Ukrainian morale. The New York Times went as far the other day as to say maybe it's more significant than we thought, but they only did it because they said it affected Ukrainian morale. Um, it's, it's actually, I'm not a military tactician, Scott, but from what I read, it's a, it's a major victory and it's a major victory for a couple of reasons. It was a heavily fortified town. So the Ukrainians have to withdraw now. So first of all, the line moves back a lot, but they have to withdraw to much harder to defend territories. But more importantly, Avdivka was sort of the gateway to the rest of the Donbass. If you can control Avdika, then the Ukrainian line Collapses and Russia has a much greater opportunity now of controlling, you know, both of those regions in the Donbass that they want to control. It's not a symbolic victory; it's a major um, strategic victory. And the other reason it's important, Scott, if we have a minute, and I think my next piece that'll that'll be up with um, with you guys will focus on this more. But you know, Zelensky really wanted to keep on this attack war of attrition, and he probably fired General Zelensky because. He knew that wouldn't work. And he hired a general who would do what he said. So he put the new general in and he told him, defend Evdivka And they did. And it went exactly the way Zelensky said it would. And it, it collapsed a lot worse than the media is telling you. I mean, the the reports now, the reports at first said that, that Ukraine withdrew. And then there were hints that People said it was an orderly withdrawal that went well, and then there were hints that actually it maybe wasn't so orderly and maybe some Ukrainians got captured or killed. Now there's reports that that maybe 1,000, maybe 1,500 Ukrainian soldiers got captured or killed, and there's reports that even before that, the town that they were organizing in, the Russians figured out they were there and shelled them and killed thousands. It, it looks now like the attempt to defend Avdivka was a strategic disaster. Um, and they not only lost this really important town, but they collapsed, and the battalions seem to have run away and surrendered, um, been captured and killed. It, it was a devastating defeat for Ukraine, and a and a really st- strategically significant. This is uh, this this could be a turning point in the war. This is not just a symbolic thing; it's a huge thing. And that's why that's why you know why would why, there's this is question of why Putin would kill Navalny? The day that happens, it's like. He didn't want to take away from that headline. So the two stories are connected, but um, I think it's a very important victory, and we'll see in the next weeks and months whether Russia will now flood through Avdika and, and continue taking more towns and sealing up the Donbass. Okay. All right, everybody,
0: that is Ted Snyder. He writes for us at antiwar.com and at libertarianinstitute.org, and his latest is Biden Knows Putin Killed Alexei Navalny. Thanks, Ted. Thanks so much, Scott. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, Antiwar.com, ScottHorton.org, and LibertarianInstitute.org.